Well, pull the outline out of your bullet or pull your, pull your bulletin out and turn to the outline, the sermon outline. Last week, we started doing a deeper dive into Luke chapter 9, verses 25 to 23. And, and just by way of review, we talked about how um, it's this formula. Deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me is Jesus' instructions. And that we, we saw how Jesus' words are words of invitation rather than scolding that he's inviting us to experience abundant life. And this is the formula, denying ourselves, taking up our cross daily and following him. And then we, um, we began to look at last Sunday, the sobering choice of verse 23. Let's say it together. And he said to them all, this is when, this is when, when I say, let's say it together, it means <laughs> say it with me. And he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And we looked at how it's a, it's a sobering choice because it's saying that I'm going to set aside my will and basically die to myself. Um, and we looked at Paul's admonition that I die daily. It's to um, walk in step with Christ no matter what it takes. And then we saw the stark truth of the choice. Verse 24. Say it together. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And we live in a, in a culture that wants gray areas. And this is black and white. If you are all about bent on protecting yourself, Jesus says, then you're going to lose your life. The abundant life that he offers here and the eternal life that he offers later. But if you are willing to lose your life, give up everything to follow Jesus, then you gain your life. And then finally, we looked at the logic and math of the choice in verse 25. Let's say it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself. And so Jesus was saying, do the math. Look at the, do the assessment. Run the return on investment formula. What does it profit you? And, and next week we're going to come back to that. What does it mean to gain the whole world? What does it mean to um, try to gain everything and to lose ourselves? And what does it mean to lose ourselves and to gain all that Jesus offers to us? Finally, we looked at the curious numbers of those who, f who choose to follow. And we looked at Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. And he was talking to his followers, those that were with him at that point. And he's saying, those of you that, that claim to follow me understand that most of you won't. Most of you really won't. That the, 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 even though Jesus says, run the numbers, do the math, and recognize that to hold on to yourself is to lose everything, still the vast numbers of people will do that. And only the few who, and verse, verse 14, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. And part of it is because it gets hard. And so the challenge that Jesus is giving to us is be part of the few. Walk the narrow way. Take the harder path because that's what leads to life. 
And then um, I pose the essential question, is there anything Jesus could ask to which you would respond, that's too much? Because that's the question that identifies, am I really following him or not? Am I really denying myself or am I just kind of following him like most of the crowds did? Today, I want to dig a into this scripture again and, and um, address what I think is, is one of the hardest places in our lives to actually deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, and follow him. And that is in the area of people. We were created for relationships. We go back to that Garden of Eden. God created Adam to have a relationship with a human being that he created. And then he created Eve to have relationships with fellow human beings. And, and the relationship was to be based in love for God and love for one another and, and work as creation. We were created for relationships. And so when sin comes in and taints it and disturbs it and turns it upside down, it makes sense that the area of relationships would be one of the hardest because Satan tries to counterfeit it. Satan tries to get us to go after relationships as a priority over God. And so the question is, what does it mean to love God and love people at the same time? And to still take up our cross daily and follow him. So Lord, we pray that you would reveal to us what you have in mind. Holy Spirit, you know what places of our lives and our thinking and our loves need to be touched. You, need, you know what we need to hear. and So I just pray, Holy Spirit, you would reach into each one of our lives to reveal ways that we can be more faithful in denying ourselves, taking up our cross daily and following you in this area of relationships with people. Teach us how to love you most and to love other people well. We give ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. What does it mean to love God and love people too? Let me give you a, a couple of definitions that you might want to write down. Jesus tells us to love God is to obey his commandments. Right? Everybody recognize that scripture? If you love me, you will obey what I command. And again, he's not got his finger in our face scolding us. He's saying, here's my invitation to you. If you want to have this relationship that you were designed for, then cooperate with me. I'm God, you're not. I'm God, I know what's best. So when I tell you, when I give you commandments, it's what's best for you. It's how you can live your life in obedience to me so that you can enjoy the abundant life that I promise. So loving God is to obey him. Loving people is to do what is best for all concern. It's to do what is best for all concern. So if I'm loving someone, I'm doing what is best. That's 180 degrees from our culture, isn't it? Because all you have to do is turn on the radio and you hear love song after love song after love song, which is all about emotion, right? And it's usually about me rather than you. All you have to do is turn on my not favorite channel, Hallmark. 
And you see the world's idea of this, you know, that nice story where people randomly meet each other and then they get to know each other and they start dating, everything's going fine, then some conflict comes along and then they get separate and you're going, are you guys stupid? Just talk about this, right? And then they get back together and everything's fuzzy and, and without fail, when Sheila's watching one of those it, towards the end, and most of them are set around Christmas time, you know, she'll look at who has a house like that? That's her comment. <laughs> who has 14 trees perfectly decorated? And the, you know, so, but that's in, the, in our cultural mentality and that seeps in. But in these definitions, you don't see anything about emotion. Emotion is the caboose that follows up on really loving. Obey God, do what's best for people. So as I was, as I was thinking about this whole thing, my mind went back to a challenge in Jesus' life. If you have your Bible, open up to Mark chapter 3. We want to look at a couple of verses there. Mark chapter 3. And we'll begin with verse 20. Mark chapter 3, beginning with verse 20. It says, this is early in Jesus' ministry. He's just chosen the 12 who who he called to follow him and be with him. And he's about to launch into a more public ministry. And, we, and in Mark 3.20, it says he went home and, and, the, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he's out of his mind. So Jesus has just launched his public ministry. He's gathered these 12 to follow him, and there's a whole bunch of other people tagging along, and uh, his ministry goes public, and he goes back home. And home for him was what's talking about is a home base in Capernaum. He had a home base, in, so he wasn't going back to his childhood home. He was going back to his home base with his disciples. They would often gather there. People knew where he was, and they would come in. They would get into the house or listen through the windows, listen to his teaching, and he was gathering a lot of followers. And now those who were closest to him, when his family heard about all that was going on with Jesus, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. Another way of saying that is we think he's crazy. We think he has lost it. We think he doesn't, he shouldn't be out in public anymore. Now put yourself in Jesus' place. He's about 30 years old, so he's lived 30 years with his mother. His, and his mother, of all people, should have recognized that this was the plan. I mean, she was there when the Immaculate Conception occurred. She was there. She, the angels had visited her. And, but I think her, her, her other children had influenced her so much that, and, and yet they had watched Jesus grow up. And they had watched his integrity. They had watched him be a good big brother to them. And yet, something's happening. And behind all of that, I have to believe there was a demonic strategy. And so often, that's the problem, is, is that we're not just fighting against flesh and blood when other people in our lives try to get us to do things that God doesn't want us to do or want us to do things that God doesn't want us to do. 
Jump down to verse 31. So they have decided they're, go they're going to go get Jesus. I don't know where they're going to take him. I don't know where they took people back in those days. But they're going to get him out of the public eye. In verse 31 it says, And his mother and brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. Remember, why did they come? To take him away. And so when they called to him, it's not just to say, Hey, Jesus, we're here. We'd like to talk to you. We, we're, they want to take him away. And Jesus knows that. And so his response, a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And now he has a choice. Am I going to love my family and do what they want me to do? Or am I going to love God, the father, and do what he wants me to do? Because loving the father means obeying his commands. And God's, the father's commands to Jesus was to be the, be the living Messiah. Now his, his, his family wants to, him to do something different. But he's still in this position where he wants to love his family as well. The ten temptation for us is when we get into that position is to get defensive and critical and begin to um, make those people that are trying to get us to do something different our enemy. Notice what Jesus does. Your mother and brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and brothers. Forever does the will of God. He is my brother and sister and mother. He says nothing bad about his mother and brothers. He doesn't criticize them. He doesn't push them away. He opens his arms wider and says, oh, you are all my family. I'm going to love God by obeying the Father's commands, and I'm going to love the people in my life by doing what is best. Because what was best for them was for him to go into public ministry, not, for, not to do what they want him to do. How, how often do we think in our minds that oh, we are responsible to please people, to do what they want us to do, and that's the loving thing? And Jesus says, nope. It's following the Father and treating others the way they should be treated. Now, with that thought in mind, later in Jesus' ministry, flip over in your Bibles to Luke chapter 14, beginning with verse 25. So now we're, all, we're toward the end of Jesus' ministry. The previous incident in Mark chapter 3 was at the beginning, and now we're getting close to his march to Jerusalem and ultimately to the cross. And he has stated previously, here's the, here's the formula. Deny yourself, take up your cross daily, follow me. That's the formula, Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 14, he emphasizes it and, and applies it specifically to our relationships. Luke chapter 14, verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me, and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciples. And I just wonder if maybe he didn't have in mind that incident from a couple of years previously when, when his brother and his mother came to try to take him away. And perhaps, and we don't know, the Bible doesn't tell us, but perhaps over those two years, he heard rumors of more criticism from his family. Maybe he hasn't had much contact. We know his mother was around, but 
We don't hear anything about his brothers at that point. You see, Jesus had had to walk away from those that he physically, humanly had loved and grown up with in order to do the Father's will. In order to do what was best for them. Because they needed him to die for them too. And they're trying to keep him from doing it. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate? whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. What does it mean to love God and love people too? Number one, it means to obey Jesus regardless. Obey, obey Jesus regardless. Keep your Bible open there to Luke chapter 14, verse 25. It says, now great crowds accompanied him. Great crowds were accompanying him. So Jesus was on his final journey to Jerusalem. And there was a buzz building. And expectation was that Jesus was finally going to establish his kingdom. The idea being that he would throw the Romans out and, and he would reestablish the kingdom of David in geographic Jerusalem. And the great multitudes had, had, um, had, been, had, had been building because he was making his way to Jerusalem. And so the closer he got to Jerusalem, the more travelers and people who were also headed to Jerusalem were gathering around him until he had all kinds of people around him. But Jesus is not interested in crowds. But in any culture, one of the measures of, su the su of success is numbers, right? And so... As, and, and that's what the Pharisees thought. Look at all the people who are following him. He must be successful. But Jesus seemed to have this habit of every time there got to be like too many people, he would start saying stuff to chase them away. Can you imagine a pastor doing that? Can you imagine a politician doing that? Nobody does that. But Jesus wasn't interested in making people happy or getting them to join his band. His concern was to please the Father first and foremost. And that has to be ours. We have to obey Jesus regardless. Because he says this. He turned to them and said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That would catch people's attention, wouldn't it? Because this is also the same Jesus who said, obey the commands. And one of the Ten Commandments is, honor your father and mother. He also had railed against the Pharisees who were allowing people to pledge money to the temple that should have been going to their parents and then letting them off the hook from ever taking care of their parents again. He had been all about loving those around us. So how in the world could he say we have to hate? 
What Jesus is talking about is an exclusivity. That he and he alone has to be number one. Regardless of what anybody else says, whether it's father or mother or wife or friends or children or brother or sister, obey Jesus regardless. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters. So what was he talking about? So um, in the past, I've always believed that it was this contrast. That Jesus was drawing a contrast and saying to love Christ most in contrast it would, it would cause this contrast with our love for everything else. And, that, and, and I would love Christ so much that my love for the other people in my life would seem like hate. There would be such a disparity. And I think there might be some of that. But as I was praying about it and thinking about this week, I, I, think, I, th- I, think, I think it includes that, but I think it is even more specific than that. That when those we love most becomes obstacles to following Jesus. We have to turn to Jesus and allow them to feel like we don't love them anymore. Does that make sense? When they become obstacles, because, so we go back to Jesus and his mother and brothers. They were, they were trying to be an obstacle to what the father had called him to do. And so out of that, he didn't criticize them. But how do you think they felt? Wait a minute, Jesus, what do you mean? All these other people, they're at the same level as we are? I don't think they went home happy, do you? I, don't th- I think on the road back, they were, they were mad. They were upset because Jesus wasn't cooperating. Did you know there will be times in your life when you are following Jesus and you choose him above other people that people won't be happy? Henry Blackaby, I don't remember if it was in the Experience in God study or or one of his other, um, said that the enemy, the devil, will try to use those closest to us unwittingly to try to keep us from doing what God wants us to do. That he will put thoughts in the heads of your children or your parents or, even, or your spouse and, and things will come out of their mouth. And, and after he said that, I remembered that there were times when I had said things to my daughter and I, and I, and I thought, Why? where did that come from? I don't even mean it. I don't even believe that. Why? But it was hurtful to her. And I had to apologize for that. The devil will do anything he can to try to keep you from following Jesus. And he uses those closest to us. When I was in high school, I um, believed that God was calling me to be a pastor. The Bible college for our affiliation was in Houston, Texas, 1,200 miles from Springfield, Ohio. And I visited that campus and I believed with all my heart that that's where God wanted me. I went back, and many of you know the story with my dad. My dad was not a Christian. In fact, he, he was emotionally abusive, um, verbally abusive. And so I went back and told, first of all, <laughs> and he was a policeman. 
with a gun. And so when I went back uh, and, I, and I said to him, I, Dad, I believe that God wants me to be a pastor. That didn't make him happy. He always had this dream of turning me into the great white hunter. You know, he had an arsenal of guns in his, in his closet and he tried to get me to be a hunter. And I never, I never gravitated that way. And so this was just another disappointment in his life. His son is going to be a pastor. And I believe God wants me to go 1,200 miles away to Gulf Coast Bible College. And that he pushed back against. See, I don't know that my dad ever left the state of Ohio after he got back from the army. He just didn't. And so he went on this quest to take me to colleges in the state of Ohio within a 100-mile radius of where I grew up. My uncle and aunt lived in Mount Vernon, Ohio, and he said, what? and he made me go to Mount Vernon. There's a, uh, a college of Mount Vernon. Um, Bible college? It is a Yeah. And, and so I and just, and he said, you could live with your aunt and uncle, it would save you money, all these. He didn't want me to go. And I just had to say, God, I got to do what you want me to do. Dad, I got to do what God wants me to do. And he wasn't happy. There will be, it would have been easier if I would have followed his advice. There will be times in your life when the people that are closest to you, there will be times in your life with people who are Christians will try to get you to do things that God doesn't want you to do. Now, not lone, we're not to be lone rangers. We need the, you know, the advice of many counselors, people, God, godly people. But we need to understand we're in a war and the enemy will try to keep you from doing what God wants you to do. And, and I believe that at the end of Jesus' ministry, that's why he makes this statement. He's been making these kind of statements all along, but now he zeroes in on those who are closest to us. The people in your life that you love the most, you have to be willing to turn to God and not allow them to be obstacles. One's loyalty to Jesus must be come before his loyalty to family or even to life itself. And I've watched in the Pittsburgh area that there, there are, um, I'm going to get in trouble if I go there. <laughs> there are ethnic groups in Pittsburgh with strong family ties. And the tie to the family and the tie to a particular kind of church is so strong that they will get mad at you if you follow Christ anywhere else. Right? right? So what do you do? I've watched young people grow up and believe that God wanted them to do something in their family, church family. Not their church family, but their family who went to church, raised them in the church, put such pressure on them that they didn't do it. And almost without exception, their lives fall apart because they're not following God. Verse 27, Jesus kind of restates what he said in Luke chapter 9. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus, I think, intensifies it here. It's as if he's saying, listen, look at me. 
I need you to really hear me on this because I've said before that anyone who wants to be my disciple must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Anyone who wants to be my disciple must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And now I'm saying again, and I'm telling you that you, it is impossible. You cannot be my disciple. So he's intensifying it. He's, he's putting uh, in, emphasis behind it. It's not just a good idea. It's essential. Which brings us to the second part. Number two, we need to choose Jesus with eyes wide open. We need to recognize that this is the cost. That it is hard. And this part has convicted me over the last couple of years especially. And the way, because it used to be when we were first starting the church and and we were trying to reach people, I... I am so convicted because here would be my presentation. God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. And all you have to do is pray this prayer. Jesus, I recognize my sins and I am sorry for my sins. I ask that you will forgive me of my sins and now I commit to follow you. And if you pray that prayer, you've got a relationship with God. And I am so sad about that. Because what it says is, here's a, this is an easy path. Jesus comes on the scene, he goes, repent. And if in comparison to your love for me, your love for anybody else is not hate, you can't follow me. If you're not willing to endure pain, you can't follow me. You can't be my follower. The narrow, it's a narrow path and it's a painful path. And so he says, count the cost. Count the cost. Verse 28. For which of you desire to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid down the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish it. He says, count the cost, because you need to count the cost. Are you willing to die for Christ? Are you willing to repent of everything else? Count the cost. Don't follow me if you're not, because you won't finish. Just like someone who's trying um, to build a tower. You won't finish it because you didn't recognize what it would entail. And, you, and, and you'll be judged a fool because you started down that path and look, you've just come back to the way that you've always been. And then verse 31, he says, or well, what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. If not, while the other is Yet a great way off, he sends the delegation and asks for terms of peace. He's saying, count the cost, just like somebody who's going to war, because you are going to war against the enemy. If you're joining me, that puts you in, op- you put, it puts a target on you for the devil. And it will cost you. And so he says, count the cost. Because just like a general, can I win this battle? Can I really do, can I fight this? Because if I, if I don't win, the, a general who doesn't win the battle is risk of his life and killing all of his, uh, the people in his army and capturing his, the, the land and all the people that he loves in the land. Count the cost. And so I think Jesus is, is he's, again, he's at the end of his ministry. He's headed to Jerusalem and he's had all these crowds listening to him for a couple of years. And he's trying to let them know very clearly to dig deep in their souls to see if they really want to follow him or not. 
because it's not an easy road. I think the question that I put there in your outline is what Jesus is trying to get at. Am I willing to lose all the people in my life in order to follow Jesus? Am I willing to do that? Recently, I've heard the story and read a book about a couple of, of men who were Islam. Their, their families were Muslim. They grew up in, in the Muslim faith. And through a series of circumstances of God drawing them and them, uh, them uh, um, discovering Christianity, they followed that path and they chose Christ. And in choosing Christ, they lost everything. They lost their family. They lost the family support. They lost money for their education. They lost it all. Am I willing to do that? Am I willing for the people in my life not to like me? Number three is to choose to really love Jesus and people. Verse 33, Luke 14. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. As plainly as possible, if you are not willing to leave it all, to lose it all, you can't be my disciple. Because this life, the default is for the here and now. And a 180 degree turn, which is what repentance is, means that you turn your back on all of it. You give it to Jesus and follow him. If you're not willing to do that. And so the question is, how do we really, really love God? We do what he tells us to do. We obey his commands. How do we really, really, really love people? By doing what's best for them. And oftentimes what's best for them is to choose Jesus. What's best for them is to, for us to choose Jesus, whether they accept it or not, whether they see it or not, whether they experience it or not. So if we go back to that attempt to, for Jesus' family to haul him off to whatever place that they would haul him off to, it says, then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when Jesus, when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he's out of his mind. And his mother and brothers are standing outside, and he called to the crowd, and, and the, crowd, the crowd was sitting with him, and they said to him, your mother and brother are outside seeking you. Who are my brother and brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, here are my brother, mother and brothers. Here's what it is. So I put some bullet points there for you. How do we really love God and really love people? The mo most important in people's is people's relationship with Jesus. Most important is people's relationship with Jesus. What is not most important is the relationship with you. When we choose people in our lives over following Jesus, over obeying him, over living for him. We don't give them the opportunity to see who Jesus is. And what good does it, what, what does it profit the people in our lives? People, our bosses, other employees, friends, family members. What does it do in their lives? What does it profit them? If they see us as nice people, but they don't see Jesus and they go to hell. 
as parents, as spouses, as children, the most important thing for us to be are followers of Jesus so other people can see Jesus. Because what difference does it make is if we have great family gatherings where nobody has conflict, if we stand at a, a, at a, a casket and that person laying there is headed for hell. The most important is for us to represent Jesus to people. It is most important for us to represent Jesus to people. And thus, Jesus must be Lord in our words, our actions, and how we relate to them. That's what it means to be salt and light. It requires that we be followers of Jesus, sold out, living, speaking, attitudes. It, our ha- your happiness doesn't have anything to do with it. The joy and confidence that comes from an abundant life does. Sometimes I hesitate to talk about myself because I don't want you to ever say, oh, look at Pastor Herb, look how spiritual he is. But uh, there's something so powerful that happened in my relationship with my dad that it, it gives us a glimpse. And I want you to have that glimpse. So growing up, my dad didn't want me to go into ministry. The only thing he told me is don't be a charlatan. It's all the advice he gave me. Just don't be, which is not bad advice. And then um, I went to Bible college, paid for it all on my own, worked hard, um, came out of ministry. And my dad, he didn't say this, but I think he thought it. The boy's crazy. Why would he do that? He had all these opportunities to make it cheaper, to make it easier. Why did he do, why did he go so far away? And then, First thing, next thing you know, I'm in Nantiglo, Pennsylvania. Anybody ever heard of Nantiglo? Amen. Have you? Anybody ever been to Nantiglo? Amen. It's like a wide spot. In the, we moved into our first pastorate, our first parsonage, had a hand-fired coal furnace. And my dad came to visit us, and, I, and the look on his face is, you're crazy. Boy, you are crazy. Went to Beaver, Pennsylvania, pastored there, he, and he would come visit there, and he just couldn't get his mind wrapped around why I would be a pastor. And then, we, and then I sensed God saying, okay, I want you to go to the South Hills of Pittsburgh and uh, start a church from scratch. And so when we talked to my dad, he goes, okay, how many people are you going to start with? Well, there's six in our family. Where are you going to get the money? Well, the church of God in Western Pennsylvania is going to help us, but we're going to have to raise some money. Where are you going to live? Well, that's, that's kind of still up in the air. Um, where are your kids going to go to school? Mm, we don't know that either. And he just thought we were crazy. But he watched, and he watched, and he watched. I started praying for him when I was probably 13 years old. In... Um, let's see, 2006. He was sitting at a camp meeting with my mom. He, was, he still wasn't going to worship. Still wasn't going to church. He's 76 years old. And one of my friends is up there preaching at the end of the service. He says, if you'd like to accept Christ as Savior, raise your hand. My mom's sitting there and she hears motion. 
And she looks over and my dad raises his hand. After 40 years of praying, 30 years in ministry, he finally accepts Christ. And then, that Christmas, he bought himself a Bible with a gift certificate and read the whole Bible in six weeks. <laughs> I, go, I never did that, and I'm a pastor. <laughs> and then I would go home, and he would, he would, I'd sit down, and, he, and he'd pull out that Bible and a piece of paper, and he had a list of questions. And he just interrogated me. <laughs> he'd just go question after question after question, going, answering these things. And, you know, sometimes I had to say, I don't know, Dad. I want to have to look that one up. And, and, and he, came, he came to Christ. In 2014, um, that same camp meeting asked me to come be the speaker. And my dad had gotten involved with the camp meeting. He was working in the kitchen. He was one of the cooks. And, and so he was at every service of that camp meeting. And, and he was so excited that I was going to be the speaker. So excited. He, could, he almost couldn't contain himself. He's telling everybody, my son's going to be the one he didn't want to go into ministry. It's so excited. In April, April 17th of 2014, camp meeting would be in August. I get a call from my sister early in the morning and she says, dad's gone. He died. Suddenly. And I, I hung up the phone and I started arguing with God. So God, why in the world, what in the world was that about? He was so excited. And I was so excited about him being there. You know, I could finally show him what I do. And God said, well, that wouldn't have been good. Because it, it wasn't about you or him. It was about something else. And so, but then I said, but God, why did I have to, why did I have to endure the emotional abuse, the verbal abuse? And then even after I was an adult, him treating me badly for 40 years, why? And I sensed God say to me, I needed someone who would live with integrity and love for me long enough for your dad to see me and come to know me. Now, if I, now, and again, don't go, oh, Pastor Herb, look, he's great, he's great. I didn't do it very well. There were times that I did not do it well because I would get so mad, so frustrated with them and so angry with them. And so, but I always had to keep coming back. I have to be the salt. I have to be the light. I have to do what Jesus wants me to do. What would have happened if I had given in to him instead of following Christ? I wouldn't have been that person, right? I wouldn't have been the person that he saw. In fact, in fact, after he got saved, he never told me this, but he told my, uh, my sister's husband, who, was, who works in hospice as a pastor, and, he, and I, I was talking to him, and he goes, I hear your, da your dad's mentor now. I'm going, mentor? What are you talking about? He, I, he says, yeah, he looks at you to discover what God is about. That only happens if we are saying, I will live for Jesus most. So I don't know who you have in your life. It may be a spouse. It may be a child. It might be a parent. It may be a brother. It might be a sister. Do not give in to the temptation of trying to please them. Only please Jesus. Because you never know 
You never know how God might use you to make a difference in their life. But if you compromise, if you give in, they'll never, they won't see Jesus. And so Jesus says to us, unless we hate everybody else in comparison to your love for me, you can't be my disciple. And that is what it means to be a follower. Would you bow your heads? I want to emphasize that I did not do it perfectly. It was only Christ in me shining through that made the difference. I did not win my dad to Christ. The Lord using this imperfect vessel was the one. Who is it in your life right now who's trying to get you to do things or not do things? that you know God wants you to do? Who's putting pressure on you? Those might be the very people that Jesus wants to reach through you, but you have to stand strong. Lovingly, as Jesus did, but you have to stand strong. So in this this moment of quiet, if there's somebody that you're trying to please more than you're trying to please Jesus, confess that to the Lord. Surrender it, repent, and say, I've been guilty. I'm not doing it anymore, Lord. I'm going to please you most. And then ask him this, Lord, what is the first step to take? What do you want me to do to love you most and love other people well? And then follow his lead. The world is dying to see Jesus. And the only way they will see him is if we put him first. Lord, I pray that you would take what we've talked about today, take your word, and apply it to each one of us. That we might be your salt, your light, your aroma in our homes with our families, in our neighborhoods, in our jobs, in our schools, wherever we go. Lord, I pray that you would give us the strength because it's only in your strength that we can do it. Give us the willingness and the ability to endure the hurt and the pain that comes from those relationships when they're not what we wish they would be. Fill us so with your love that no matter how people treat us, all they get back is your love. And then mold us to be the church that you want us to be, that loves you most and loves people in your power, in your strength. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.